How's it going, everybody? Back here for another discussion-based podcast, and we're going to be talking about hip impingement, and we're going to be breaking down a case scenario where we try to get into some of the biomechanics, some dysfunctions we see, some correctives to do, and just use a case scenario to describe or manage you know, something we see pretty often in the clinic and also in the, the training setting. Um, update on a few things. we got some fun interviews coming up, so I have... Zach Long, who's kind of the barbell physio, we're going to be talking about bridging the gap between PT and uh, powerlifting and barbell strength training. Also got Charlie Weingroff coming up, and we're going to be reviewing some of the new content. He just created a new like ACL course, so picks his brain on that. So two kind of big names, fun people to talk to, so stay tuned for that. Uh, do have the own brick and mortar location open now. So if you ever, if you're a clinician and want to come up and shadow and hang out, feel free. If you're ever in need of care or treatment, feel free to reach out or know people who do love to help, love to mentor, love to kind of build the community. So let's get into, to what we're talking about today. So hip impingement, what is hip impingement to be general or kind of broad with it? It's when you bring your knee up into your chest, you get a pinch in your hip. Um, and we originally thought, and it's still an issue, but we thought, you know, oh, if you have hip impingement, you have a cam or a pincer impingement, which basically means you have bony overgrowth on one of the two articulating structures of the hip, either on the acetabular rim, on the femoral head neck junction. You take the hip into end range flexion or moderate end range flexion. Those bony abnormalities run into each other and you have hip impingement. <clears throat> that is the case, but probably early 2000s, early 2010s, we saw anybody with hip impingement, oh, you've got this bony impingement and you need to have surgery. I had the chance to work at <clears throat> the Stedman Philippon Institute where Philippon was one of the big pioneers of this and I saw, I don't know, hundreds of post-op hip scopes clearing out FAI symptoms um, and retrospectively, I bet you a lot of those people could have done a whole lot better long-term without actually having surgery to begin, but that's neither, neither here or there. But I like to think of <clears throat> hip impingement being similar to shoulder impingement, right? It's not like if you have shoulder impingement, you go in and have surgery and shave off your acromion. We once did, but we don't do that anymore. Now we realize that what's driving the shoulder dysfunction, we try to address that. The same thing goes with, with the hip. So if we think about the hip, right, what can drive impingement? It can be a range of motion loss of the true hip capsule and hip mobility. It could be a hip stability loss, meaning the ability to control rotation, flexion, extension, abduction lost, core stability loss. So if you've lost trunk stability, core strength, when you get into squat patterns, you're going to end up losing your spinal integrity, pitch into lumbar extension, typically then leading to a nominate anterior rotation or anterior pelvic tilt, which will close down and narrow the hip and cause, excuse me, hip impingement. Um, also is thinking about below the kinetic chain. So if I lack dorsiflexion in my ankle, I'm going to be limited in triple flexion. That limitation in triple flexion is going to drive compensations up the chain and can lead to hip impingement and a lack of squat depth. Another one you might not think of is a lock of thoracic extension, particularly, again, if you have someone who's doing more maybe 
powerlifting, squatting, CrossFit stuff. If they're trying to do more of a goblet squat, an upright trunk orientation squat, or even the FMS, the deep squat, you have to have thoracic extension, range of motion, and stability to maintain an upright trunk. You lose that, the trunk pitches forward, you narrow down the hip, and you can lead to impingement. And with a lot of these cases... It's not like, oh, you just have this one thing, you do this once and you impinge your hip, but it's years, months, whatever, a long period of time of dysfunctions that brew and eventually the hip just starts to show and kind of present as pain. And the last one, which is maybe even the most important one, is pelvic dysfunction. Pelvic floor dysfunction will lead to neural tension in the hip. It will lead to rotation weaknesses in the hip. Um, basically, you're losing your, your flooring of your core. When you lose that flooring, you lose stability. And again, you're going to get compensations and often impingements, particularly if you have bilateral impingement, obviously in a female, but also in a male. you got to start thinking about the pelvis and the pelvic floor. Um, the pelvis is also part of this, right? So if you have a nominant or sacral or even lumbar mobility losses, it's going to drive compensations into the hip. So all that being said, let's start to break this down even a little bit more. What happens with a normal hip, right? If you're getting into hip flexion and then we're going to break down a case. So the normal hip, right? You roughly have, there is no normal range, but you know, you have a range maybe 130 to 150 degrees of hip flexion, knee to chest. And there's something called the Hissel test. But with the Hissel test, what you're doing is the first portion of that motion primary just comes from the hip, then a little bit from the innominate, then a little bit from the sacrum, then a little bit from the lumbar spine. And in general, good goals are roughly the first 110 or so should be from the hip itself. So if you're getting hip impingement at a, a 90 degree hip flexion angle, you're not even getting to the point where the pelvis needs to assist the motion. And thus you probably do have a true hip capsule or a hip isolated issue. If you go past 110, roughly 110 to about 130 degrees, you are mostly getting a nominant motion. If you go 130 to 150, that's mostly sacral and lumbar, and everything over 150 is lumbar flexion. And it's good to think about this sequencing because depending on where their hip range of motion loss or their pinch presents might dictate which segment or which part of that flexion is lost. Um, we think about the butt wink, which is basically if you get into a squat pattern and you break a certain degree of squat depth and you see lumbar spine rounding of the trunk, rather than hip flexion that usually indicates, again, compensation. But inevitably the lumbar spine is going to have to round at a certain degree. So if you're going butt to the floor, there's really no way the hip has the capacity to do that motion without lumbar flexion. But if we break down the butt wink a little bit more, we think butt wink, again, rounding of the low back as you squat is, oh, you have a hip range of motion loss. And I probably actually see more with butt winks as actually a core or trunk stability issue. So I'll see if I prop up the heel, which offsets the kind of counterbalances the trunk, making it easier to stabilize your trunk, you squat and that hip impingement or the butt wink will go away. Or if you assist the squat pattern by holding a suspension band or a cook's band or something to unload the pattern and they get to that depth without their low back rounding or without the butt wink, you know, it's a stability issue. <clears throat> so if you unload or make the pattern easier and the butt wink goes away, you know, that's not a hip range of motion loss because if it's a hip range of motion loss, it doesn't matter 
what you do to assist it, it's always going to be stuck or lost at a certain degree. So let's try to break down an example of a case scenario, how it might present in the clinic or in the training room, and what you might do to initiate treatment and what are some maybe good goals for this client. So I think an obvious one would be going over something like a CrossFit athlete. But what if we talk about a runner, right? So runners get hip impingement a lot. And they're getting hip impingement not because of repetitive end range flexion, but because of gross dysfunction in their system. By that I mean, you know, common issues with runners is they'll lack hip rotation and extension control, they'll lack core stability, they'll often lack hip extension range, thoracic range of motion, the whole gamut here. So then when they're going through their running stride, they're doing repeated loading, they're not doing it from their trunk and the proper sequencing of muscles, and they tend to dominate with your phasic muscles or your big drivers or movers. So your rectus will drive it. even your QL will start to get involved. Um, your TFL will start to get involved. And so what you get is this muscular tension holding pattern around the hip joint. What that does is it offsets that hissle, or it offsets that flexion mechanism that we're used to. And so you are running, you're doing repetitive loading, you have dysfunctions, weaknesses, either mobility or stability-based, and you pre- you develop a hip of a guarded hip, a hip of, a hip of tension, neurological holding, something that's just like freaking out because the load you're putting through it is too much and so it's in a guarded or tensioned state. You then ask that hip to flex, i.e. get in and out of a chair, bring your knee to your chest. Um, Maybe this runner actually is doing strength work as well and they'll get hip impingement. Um, So where do you start with this runner, right? First off, if you have a runner that you're training or treating or whatever your profession is, you got to watch them run. As long as it's not acute, hot, you're going to cause immediate pain or cause inflammation. Running should be one of the first things you look at because that's often what's dictating it. So let's say you do a gait analysis, you pick up some things. Um, again, you're just noticing that general trend of poor hip and trunk stability um, and in general, poor thoracic mobility, poor hip extension, some standard runner presentation. I'm not getting into too much detail there because I more want to talk about just management of hip impingement cases. Um, the common tendency is if you have a pinch with flexion, okay, I'm going to put a strap in your hip and I'm going to mobilize flexion until that flexion goes away. But what I like to visualize is first you want to try to get the joint on axis or centered or in a more efficient state or more restful state. So often if you restore rotation of the joint, both internal and external, get the rotation to become soft and supple at the end. Sorry, excuse me. If you get that rotation to be soft or supple at the end, that rotation creates capsular mobility in 360 degrees, and it also creates the hip to be in a more neutral resting state. You then take the hip up into flexion, and you'll often have the impingement with flexion go away without actually addressing flexion itself. Um, And this actually holds true with the shoulder, too. There's evidence that supports for every degree of external rotation you get, you get two degrees of flexion. So instead of mobilizing into an impinging inflammatory position, mobilize in positions that don't cause inflammation or pain, but also improve the motion of emphasis. So one, get rotation restored. 
two is get abduction restored. Abduction is important for two reasons, several reasons, but one reason would be getting that inferior medial capsular mobility. It's something we often lack and something that we need to restore hip extension, range of motion needed in the gait cycle. Gait involves hip extension, abduction, internal rotation at the toe-off phase. Um, so again, helping with getting capsular mobility in a position that's not impinging will indirectly help that flexion or impinged position. The other is we often lack, especially if you're a runner, you lack frontal plane and hip st uh, stability. So if we are going to be trying to strength train lateral movements, frontal plane, glute med, glute men, whatever gamut you have for frontal plane stability, you have to first have the motion to strength, right? It'd be me like strengthening overhead positions from my shoulder, but not being able to get my arm over my head. You got to mobilize or restore the motion before you stabilize. So long story short, don't just go to flexion and mobilize it. Get the hip in its entirety to be more efficient. The flexion will probably resolve and it'll set up an environment to make stability easier. The next thing you gotta do is you gotta drive into low back and pelvic efficiency. Again, with hip impingement, usually you're gonna be having some sort of soft tissue holding of your psoas, your rectus, your iliacus. That's gonna start influencing your lumbar spine. So do they have the ability to touch their toes? Do they have segmental flexion of their lumbar spine? Do they have it both actively in maybe a standing position or an active straight leg raise as well as passively? You also want to be able to ensure posterior chain elongation. So again, from the previous talk, we restored hip capsular mobility, so we know the first chunk of the hip motion is going to be clean. We restored lumbar flexion, or basically flexion of the lumbar and pelvis, both actively and passively. Now if we get into kind of restoring the posterior elongation of the soft tissue structures on the back side of the hip, that's going to, again, create easy access and allow you to strengthen the anterior structures needed for hip flexion control. So when I think of posterior structures, I'm thinking of like the gluteal interface, I'm thinking of hamstring attachments to the ischial tuberosity, I'm thinking about sciatic nerve, pudendal nerve, piriformis, the list goes on and on. <clears throat> but that posterior elongation is really crucial to get hip flexion. So in my first day of treatment, I might be doing some active elongation where if I'm strengthening the front of the hip, I'm lengthening the back of the hip, so I'm doing like neuromuscular control and stretching at the same time. I'm doing some rotation and abduction mobs. I'm doing some neuromuscular re-education into flexion in an impingement-free range. I'm maybe doing that supine or even sideline, depending on how irritated they are, and that's my day one treatment. I've improved hip motion, and I've got them stabilizing the new motion that I just gained. They come in for treatment too. I'm hopefully getting them off the table, getting them moving, and I'm going to be loading hip flexion. I'm doing maybe eccentric isometric goblets where I'm doing slow descents with load into a hip flexion position at the bottom of that pattern, doing nice prolonged holds and doing isometric holds, getting like a capsule or stretch and strength into hip flexion range of motion. Uh, I'm also going to be then maybe getting into some of the running gait training, cueing a forward lung trunk lean, cueing rib cage positioning so they're not overextending from their spine. And so I'm getting more into these second and third treatments of weighted end range capsular mobilities or hip flexion ranges of motion. And then I'm getting into their functional training, one, to get them back to do what they want to do, but two, 
when they get back to run or whatever they're doing, I'm ensuring they're not doing patterns or positions that are causing inflammation and going to make them regress. And then the third phase is to then teach them lifelong strategies of staying fit. So you got to be for this runner teaching them maybe some pre post running activation, stretch stability exercises to make sure that the counters of the negatives of running or repetitive loading are being counterbalanced appropriately with stability. So the system can withstand the loads. Um, I'm teaching them some strength and conditioning work, particularly probably some barbell, kettlebell, dumbbell work. So I'm loading the system, creating a more durable system. But again, towards the end of this plan of care, I'm trying to teach them self care strategies so they can fix themselves, manage themselves and stay healthy as long as possible. So that's a lot of swallow, a lot of information. But just to sum it up a little bit is when you're dealing with hip flexion or hip impingement, don't just think it's the hip. When you're starting to restore hip flexion range of motion or try to get that impingement to go away, start with the hip, start in impingement-free zones, and progress from there. Hip impingements can be tricky, again, especially in those like pelvic floor, complex pelvic coccyx, issues, maybe people who have uh, incontinence, because you start to get bilateral holding patterns, things start to get complex. Um, so don't be frustrated by those cases and take your time and refer out if it's appropriate. Um, hopefully you got a good little nugget or two about some hip function there. Feel free to DM, message, email, anything if you have questions or if you want to talk through cases. Uh, but enjoy and more fun content to come. Take care.